Okay, if we could find our way to our seats. It's great to see all of you here tonight. Thank you so much for choosing to worship with us tonight. And I do want to express my thanks once again to the team of people that show up here early on Saturday and get all of this set up uh, for us. Let's express our appreciation to them. And then they have to, after the service uh, tonight, uh, put everything away. And we're just so thankful for the labor of, of our team uh, in putting these services uh, together uh, for uh, our spiritual uh, benefit. I guess I've been giving you guys a weather report on uh, most of these weeks, and the temperature right now is 84 degrees. Anyone remember what it was at this point last week? 90. How could you forget? Um, so it's 84 degrees, and it actually says a 10% chance of rain. It actually says that on my weather app. So, uh, But we have a nice breeze of 10 miles an hour uh, to make for a very comfortable uh, service for us tonight. So we thank the Lord uh, for that. Uh, we also have some good news to uh, share uh, with you tonight before we get into the word. Uh, Callan James DeMille was born to Jonathan and Julia DeMille on July 10th, coming into the world at eight pounds, eight ounces, and 21 inches long. And they're here uh, tonight uh, in this car right here, and you see they have a banner over their car that says Callan's First Service. So welcome, Callan, to this first service which I'm sure he will sleep through. But we rejoice over this precious gift of, of life that God has given to Jonathan and to Julia. And let's be praying for them and encouraging them as they nurture this precious little life uh, and prepare themselves to bring him up in the nurture and the discipline of the Lord. Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles tonight to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, we're doing a verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Titus. And as we continue uh, in our series through this book, we come tonight to Titus chapter 3, verse 1. And my goal tonight is to cover verses 1 through uh, 7 and if you want to give a title to the message this evening, it would be Gospel Reminders in a Time of Outrage. Gospel Reminders in a Time of Outrage. We are living in a day of outrage where truly outrageous things are happening all around us, so much so that you need to say a prayer and brace yourself whenever you turn on the TV to watch the news or go online to see what the latest news headlines are. On top of that, there are people who want power and influence over us, and they have much to gain by keeping us outraged and alienated from people who disagree with us. Whichever side of the media that you prefer to listen to, whether it be the right or the left, you will hear a lot of self-righteous tirades about how right your way of thinking is and how stupid and how sinister and hypocritical everyone else is who holds to a different viewpoint. And because of that, it's easy for us to get caught up in the spirit of that and to look at people who disagree with us as hopeless cases who are unworthy of any courtesy and respect from us. I've noticed this is a confession that 
when I'm on social media that I tend to click on videos where the headlines promise me that someone who holds a view opposite of mine is going to get owned or destroyed or crushed by someone of my point of view. And I will often click on those videos because there's a part of me that wants to see someone who holds a different point of view than mine get humiliated and crushed. As Christians, we can see or look upon ungodly people in our society and watch them behave in ways that make us angry. And often this anger is actually justified, but mixed into our anger can often be a spirit of self-righteous pride and inward gloating over the fact that we are not like those people on the other side of the issues. On top of that, we feel justified in withholding kindness and courtesy and love from them, and we feel justified in being as ugly toward them as we feel inclined to be. This is the age we live in. This is an age of outrage. You may be surprised to know that Christians on the island of Crete found themselves in a similar situation to what we find ourselves in today. Imagine living on an island where the inhabitants of that island are rightly described by one of their own as always liars, always evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's the way the Cretans are described in Titus chapter 1. And imagine also living among people who are rightly described as foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending their life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's the way the Cretans are described in our passage tonight. Imagine living among people like this and even having some of them serving in positions of government ruling over you. It would be easy in such circumstances to lose your mind and to write such people off and to view them as unworthy of your respect and submission if they are your government leaders or to view them as unworthy of your kindness if they are your fellow citizens. This is the kind of people that the Cretan Christians had to live with. And in our passage tonight, Paul wants to remind them of how they are to think and behave with regard to these individuals that are in their positions of government and living alongside of them on the island of Crete. Non-believers living sinful lives with whom they have to deal. At the beginning of this chapter in verse 1, Paul calls upon Titus to remind his congregation of certain things that they must do. And you might want to mark that word remind. Things that they must do and think about their relationships with people outside the church. And his use of the word remind in verse 1 indicates that what Paul is about to say in the coming verses is actually something that he and Titus have already taught the Christians on the island of Crete. Evidently, these Christians already know the things that Paul is about to say, yet even though they had been taught these things and already knew them, Paul seems to think that they needed to be reminded once again, and he gives Titus the task of doing this reminding. And obviously, the reason they needed reminded is very likely because they weren't doing these things. They had fallen away from them. So as we look at this passage tonight, we're going to observe three things. Very simple outline tonight. Three things that we as Christians must remember when tempted to be unkind and hopeless toward those who are lost. Three things that we as Christians must remember when we're tempted to be unkind and hopeless and 
and even arrogant toward those around us or in our culture who are lost. And first of all, we should remember, number one, how God calls us to behave toward those outside the church. We must remember how God calls us to behave toward those outside the church, those who do not know him. Listen to what Paul says in verses 1 and 2. He says to Titus, remind them, speaking of the members of the church of Crete, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. The thing that lumps all of these encouragements together is that they deal with how Christians ought to behave toward those who are outside the church, their government officials and their fellow citizens. And regarding government leaders, in verse 1, Paul wants Titus to remind his congregation, look what he says, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. When Paul tells us to be subject to rulers, he's not calling upon us to be subjugated by our rulers, but to voluntarily subject ourselves to those who have been established by God to rule over us in government. Paul then tells us to be obedient to these authorities. This would include things like paying taxes and obeying laws of the land that are handed down to us and obeying directives that are given to us by our governing leaders. If our governing leaders demand that we do something that violates a clear command of Scripture, then we should, in those cases, obey God rather than man. But in every other area, we are to seek to submit to our leaders in government and to obey them. According to what Paul says in verse 1, we are also to be ready for every good deed. We are to be ready for good deeds the way a runner is ready when he is at the starting blocks, poised and ready for the race to begin. And we should be ready not just to engage in good deeds, but Paul says every good deed, whatever the circumstances require whatever the need of the moment may be. And part of what Paul is talking about here in this context is the good deeds involved in submitting to and obeying our governing authorities. Whenever our government passes a law or our governing leaders give us a guideline or directive, our bias as believers should be to seek for any way that we can legitimately obey unless we see that doing so brings us into clear violation of Scripture. And we should seek to do good to our governing leaders in the way that we behave toward them, in the way that we speak about them and pray for them and thank God for them and honor them. This doesn't mean that we never voice disagreement with our governing leaders But it does mean that even when we voice disagreement with our governing leaders, that we do so in a way that reflects honor and respect toward them. Now, fortunately, we happen to live in a country that invites our participation in the process of determining who holds office in our land And our Constitution recognizes our right to speak up and to let our voice be heard, even when that is in disagreement with our governing leaders. And so we do speak up and voice our earnest opinions. And as Christians, we cast our votes, but we always do so in a way that shows honor to others. And we also seek to submit to those whom God has established over us even if those persons are not who we personally voted for. One of the key principles that we here at Cornerstone have been seeking to follow over the last four months throughout this pandemic 
is the principle of submission and honor to our governing authorities. When a new guideline or guidance comes down from our state and county officials, our bias has been to submit to their directives. And so we listen to what they have to say, and then we think about how we can obey these guidelines while at the same time obeying God. And we do that, guys, because of passages like this here in Titus chapter 3 that call us to be in submission and obedience to our governing authorities. God is the one who commands us to do this. And because God commands us to submit to our governing leaders, we're not guilty of putting man over God when we submit to our governing authorities. We're actually obeying God by acting in this way and submitting and obeying in every way we can. Now, the day may come when we here at Cornerstone and as Christians must disobey our governing authorities for one reason or another, and we stand ready to do that when the time comes. But our bias until then is always to obey until the moment that our government demands that we violate Scripture. In verse 2, Paul, having spoken about this, he widens his focus a bit and explains how Christians are to respond to their government leaders and also now to their non-believing fellow citizens, even the most foolish and hateful among them. According to verse 2, Paul says that we are, listen to what he says, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. The Greek word that is translated malign is the word blasphemeo, from which we get our word. Come on, guys. Blaspheme, very good. Uh, And this word means to verbally abuse someone to their face or to speak in a derogatory way about someone behind their back, either truthfully or slanderously. It can also mean to speak about them in a way that is designed to make them look ridiculous and foolish. This would include even judging someone's heart when we cannot read their heart but assuming the worst about their motives and putting the worst spin on their motives. And this kind of thing happens so often nowadays. There are people on the right and the left today who have made a cottage industry out of taking people's words out of context and twisting those words to mean the exact opposite of what they were intended to mean all as a means of stirring up outrage against that person. We are living today in an age of horizontal blasphemy where people make their living off of blaspheming their fellow man, blaspheming government leaders. And we can easily get caught up in this and do the same thing and feel totally justified while doing so. But here in verse 2, Paul tells us to malign no one, even if they are maligning us. According to verse 2, we are also to be peaceable. And the Greek word translated peaceable literally means without dispute. Someone who is peaceable is someone who doesn't need a fight to justify their existence or to gain and maintain a following. Such an individual knows what hills to die on, and they know what things are not worth disputing about. In verse 2, we're also reminded here to be gentle. And the Greek word here that's translated gentle is two words combined into one. Literally, the word means over-reasonable. Over-reasonable. This is not just a command to be reasonable, but overly reasonable. A gentle person in this sense of the term 
is someone who goes above and beyond and makes every effort to remain reasonable and gentle in the face of provocation. And if that's not enough, in this passage, Paul also wants us to be reminded to be showing every consideration for all men. And the word that is translated consideration here is the word we normally translate as meekness or even gentleness. We see this even in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek. It's the word that often gets described as power under control and power that is used for good rather than to inflict hurt. And strikingly, Paul does not just call us to exhibit this quality toward some, but he says toward all men, all men, the lovely and the unlovely, those who agree with us and think we're wonderful, and those who disagree with us and think we're awful. All men would include Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, those who are Christians and those who are non-Christians, those who are gentle and respectful toward us and those who are not. In verse 2, Paul gives us clear instruction to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing or exhibiting every meekness toward all people. And yet, here's what we often do with a passage like this. We happily apply this passage toward people who behave in all these ways toward us. And then we disobey this passage with regard to people who mistreat us. And we think we're justified in disobeying this passage in our treatment of others because of how messed up they are and how wrongly they have treated us. But we shouldn't think this way and create exclusions here. In fact, if you're wondering tonight who in your life you owe these godly behaviors to, here's how you can know. Think about anyone in your life or in our government right now that you would love to malign and injure through your words and your actions. Whoever those people are that are coming to your mind, that's who Paul wants you to apply these instructions to in your dealings with regard to them. You may hear all of that and say, Pastor Milton, you're going to have to help me to get to a place like this because I am just not there right now. Well, Paul anticipated that you would be thinking that. So having reminded you of how to behave toward those outside the church, Paul delivers another reminder to us, which leads us to the second thing that we need to remember when we're tempted to be unkind and hopeless and arrogant toward people who are lost. Number two, we should remember what we were like before God saved us. We should remember what we were like before God saved us. Listen to what Paul says in verse 3. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lust and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. What an ugly picture is being painted here, yet Paul includes himself in this description of what he and Titus and the Christians on the island of Crete and all of us were like before God saved us. And notice how verse 3 begins with the word for. In giving the descriptions that Paul gives here in verse 3, Paul is giving us the reason that we need to behave toward non-believers in the way that he's just identified in verses 1 and 2. And notice how Paul uses the word also when he says, for we also once were foolish ourselves. He's clearly saying something about what the people on the island of Crete were like at the present time, including those who served in government And Paul is saying, you see them? You see the way they live? We also 
were once like them. So what should we do if we find ourselves having to deal with people like this? Well, we should be respectful and good to them. And to help us to do that, Paul tells us that we need to remember that we were once just like them before God saved us. And as for what Paul and Titus and the members of his church and us were like before salvation, Paul first says this. He says, we also once were foolish. The word translated foolish means to be dangerously wrong-headed, wrong-minded in your thinking, and yet thinking yourself wise the whole while. This was us before Christ saved us. According to verse 3, Paul also says that we were disobedient. Disobedient both to the governing authorities and also to God. Think about it, guys. Before you were saved, how submissive were you to God's authority over your life? How submissive were you to the government's authority? What laws did you break before God saved you? What laws would you still be breaking if God had not saved you through Jesus Christ. Think about these kinds of things when you find yourself tempted to lose hope for some person who is right now just as disobedient and rebellious as you once were. According to what Paul says here in verse 3, we also were deceived, deceived about God Deluded into a lifestyle that is the opposite of what we should have been living. Deluded into thinking and believing damnable lies. This was us before God saved us. So as you look upon people in our culture today and you hear them talk and you're like, they're just so deceived. Paul says, so were you before God saved you. In verse 3, Paul also says that we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. This was us before God saved us. The word lust speaks of strong, sinful cravings that flow from within and beckon us to follow them. Before we were saved, all we had to do was feel the risings of these lusts. And we did their bidding like a slave does the bidding of his master. Paul also says that we were slaves to various pleasures. And the word translated pleasures is the word we get our English word hedonism or hedonist from. It's another name or word for our sinful lust, but it puts the focus on the feeling of temporary pleasure that we were chasing when we gave in to these various lusts. Someone who follows their lust and experiences the pleasure of fulfilling them in the moment does not normally think of himself as a slave. They just think, I'm doing what I want to do. But the truth is, such a person is a slave to his lust and to the pleasure that he is seeking after in giving into those lusts. The problem is that these particular strong cravings that emerge from within are a part of his or her fallen humanity, and they are an offense to God. The problem is that these lusts will ultimately bring a pain that will far outweigh any momentary pleasure that they provided. The problem is that these pleasures are short-lived that come from the fulfillment of sinful lust, leaving a person with deep discontentment when that feeling of pleasure has worn off and left a guilty conscience in its wake. Then there's also the problem of the law of diminishing returns. A lust fulfilled brings pleasure, but that same lust fulfilled the next time brings less pleasure. And people who are enslaved to their lust are people who need more and more each time in order to generate that initial feeling of pleasure that they can't seem to capture so easily anymore. It's a horrible way to live, which leaves a person more and more frustrated and never content, chasing after things that 
promised them pleasure, but which never bring a pleasure that truly lasts and that truly satisfies. And Paul is saying, before Christ saved us, these are the things that we were enslaved by, our own sinful cravings and pleasures. We chased after pleasures, but those pleasures obviously didn't satisfy, nor did they make us happy because, as Paul says here in verse 3, look what he says, we were spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Think about why this might be. Why would pleasure chasers be so malicious and envious and hateful? Well, because they're frustrated in their pursuit of their selfish lust for power or money or sex or whatever else it might be because other people get in the way of them fulfilling their sinful desires. And even when some people do experience their dreams coming true, they are often left even more frustrated because they now realize that that dream did not give them the fulfillment that they thought that it would. Back in 1990, Cynthia Heimel wrote an article about three people that she knew before they became famous. She knew them before they fulfilled their wildest dreams and became famous, and she knew them after they fulfilled their dreams and became famous. And she observed something fascinating about all three of these individuals that she knew. She writes, and I quote, when they became successful, every one of them became more angry, manic, unhappy, and unstable than they had been when they were working hard to get to the top. That giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to fill them with ha-ha happiness, had happened. And the next day they woke up and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable, unquote. Ultimately, when you have a society of people who are all chasing after the fulfillment of their own selfish and sinful desires, you will see a whole lot of paranoia and conflict. You won't have happy people who are full of love. You will have people who are full of malice and envy toward others, which is exactly what Paul says here in verse 3. Paul says that we were once spending our life in malice and envy. The word malice speaks of wishing ill upon others. And envy speaks of the resentment that we feel when someone we wish ill upon is experiencing good fortune. Malice and envy belong together because they feed off of one another. Envy is what we feel when someone we have malice toward experiences good fortune. And then we feel even more malice against that person who has that thing that we wish they didn't have. In fact, that we wish we had instead of them. Paul also says that we were hateful, hating one another. We hated others and those very people we hated also hated us. And keep in mind that when Paul speaks of us being hateful and hating that that doesn't just mean having a passionate hatred against someone with a loathsome hatred, but it also speaks of just simply viewing another person as being worthless or of no account, just an obstacle that's in our way. All these things Paul states here describe the unsaved people who were living around these Christians on the island of Crete. And Paul reminds the Christians that this was once what they were like. What Paul describes here describes all those who are 
even today, presently, outside of Christ. And they also describe what you and I were like before God saved us. And guys, we need to think about this. We should not forget what we were like before God saved us. Before you self-righteously shake your head at sinners and look down on them for being the way they are, Paul says, be reminded that this is what we were like before God saved us. Paul doesn't want us to forget this fact. He knows that if we remember what we were like before Christ saved us, then, then we will be humble and gracious in the way that we view people who are right now as we once were. We would also look upon them with hope, knowing that if God could actually save us and transform us into something different and more beautiful, then God can do the same miracle in them. And that then becomes our orientation, right? And that leads us to the third thing that we should remember when we're tempted to be unkind and arrogant and hopeless toward those who are lost. Number three, we should remember how God went about saving us. Yeah, we need to remember what we were like before God saved us, but we also need to stop and remember how it was that God went about saving us. Listen to what Paul says beginning in verse 4. He says, but, like this is what we were, verse 3, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Notice the words kindness and love that Paul uses here. The word kindness speaks of God's goodness that is sweet to the taste for anyone who experiences it. We deserved his judgment and instead we received his kindness. The single Greek word that is translated love for mankind is the word philanthropia, from which we get our English word philanthropy. This is the only time this word shows up in the New Testament. In ancient Greek culture, philanthropy was considered the highest of virtues. And here we see that God displayed this great virtue in Christ, given the fact that we were so selfish and Hateful before we were saved, there's no reason that we could have expected this philanthropy and kindness from God, but this is what He manifested towards us in Christ when we did not deserve it. And part of Paul's point is that if God can show such kindness and philanthropy to foolish and hateful sinners like we were, then we have every reason to want to be like Him. And to show kindness and philanthropy to people in our lives who are lost in their sins just as we once were. And notice the word appeared in verse 4. This is actually now the third time that we see this root word in the book of Titus. Back in Titus 2.11, this word is used to speak of the first coming of Christ which involved the life he lived, the death he died, and his resurrection all the way to his ascension. In Titus 2.13, this word is used to speak of Christ's second coming. And in this passage that we're looking at tonight, here in Titus 3, this word refers both to Christ's first coming and to the moment of our personal conversion when the kindness and the love of God so manifested themselves to our conscience that we were left with no other choice but to respond to him in faith and believe in Christ and be saved. The first coming of Christ in which he died for our sins and then was raised from the dead, followed by the moment that God's kindness manifested itself to our conscience as he drew us savingly to the Savior is the greatest act of philanthropy that the world has ever known. And we are the recipients of that as believers. Paul says, when God's kindness and philanthropy appeared, he saved us. 
He saved us from slavery to our sinful lust. He saved us from the guilt of our sins and the eternal punishment that we deserve for our sins. He saved us from a life of malice and envy and and hate. And the experience of this salvation ought to fill our hearts with gratefulness and it ought to humble us enough to impact the way that we view and treat others who have not yet experienced this philanthropy and kindness that has been shown to us. Paul doesn't stop there. It turns out that God didn't just save us. There's actually something about how he saved us that should humble us and affect the way that we ourselves relate to the lost. In verse 5, Paul says he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. See, if Paul stopped and said he saved us, some of us might have thought, well, of course he saved me because I'm not like these other people. I'm a more worthy object of salvation than others are. But Paul is saying, don't think for a moment that God saved you because you were somehow better than other people or more righteous than others. The salvation that God gave to us, Paul is saying, was not based on any deeds that we did in righteousness. Our righteousness was as filthy rags to God. And there was no way that it could atone for the millions of sins that we had committed throughout our lifetime. God didn't save us on the basis of the works that we had done in righteousness. According to verse 5, he saved us according to his mercy. And the word mercy speaks of love that is shown to somebody whose condition is so wretched that it elicits compassion from the person who is showing mercy and providing help. I say this half seriously. Paul's choice of the word mercy here points us, perhaps, to at least one thing that you and I may have brought to the table that played a role in moving the heart of God to save us. There may have been one contribution, one thing we brought to the table, and that one thing was our pitifulness. God was moved with compassion over our pitiable state, and he acted to save us out of that compassion. How did he save us? In verse 5, Paul says, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Guys, we didn't clean up our act. God cleaned us up. We were filthy and foul-smelling, repulsive. We needed to be washed from the guilt of our sins and from the defilement of our sins. And God gave to us the washing that we needed through the blood of his Son and through the water of his word. According to this verse, God also regenerated us. This means that we were spiritually dead and completely unable to even begin to respond to God, even to believe in Christ. So God performed the miracle of rebirth and bringing us to life spiritually so that we could then respond to him. And he didn't just give life to the old version of ourselves. He renewed us, Paul says, meaning he resurrected us into a new creation, making us something radically different than what we were before this miracle was accomplished. And God accomplished this regeneration and renewal through his Holy Spirit, at which time the Spirit caused us to look to Christ in faith so that we could then believe in him and then experience God washing us from the guilt of our sins and the defilement of our sins through the blood of Jesus that was shed for us at the cross. It was God who did all of this and brought us to Christ, and then he bathed us. If you're here this evening and you're wondering if you've been regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit what you're really asking is, am I spiritually alive or am I dead? And if you want to know the answer to that question, here's 
a few quick questions to ask yourself. First of all, do you believe in Jesus and love him? Do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and love him? Secondly, do you have a hunger for God's word? If you don't, you're dead. If you do, you're alive. Thirdly, do you have within you a desire to obey God? And do you find yourself repenting at the feet of Jesus whenever you fall short? If your answer to these questions is yes, then you have been made alive by the Spirit of God. If your answer to these questions is no, then in all likelihood you are still very much sadly dead in your sins, but you're not without hope. If you are spiritually dead and you want to be regenerated and renewed, you must realize that you cannot regenerate and renew yourself. It's something that God's Holy Spirit must accomplish. So the thing that you need to do is to come to God even tonight with your bankrupt self and admit your inability and your helplessness and believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ, and ask God to perform this miracle of regeneration and renewal in you. According to the Bible, He will hear your prayer. He will answer your cry if you come to Him in humility and faith, even tonight. God is a good God, and He does not withhold His good gifts from those who humbly ask Him. This miracle of regeneration and renewal is something that God performs in all those who believe in Jesus, and he performs this miracle through the Holy Spirit. And guys, look at this. He doesn't just use the Holy Spirit to be the agent of performing this miracle. He also then gives us the Spirit. He says, here, you can have my Holy Spirit. In verse 6, Paul speaks of the Spirit and says, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He uses the Spirit to accomplish this miracle and then gives us the Spirit. It'd be like you needing to go to Los Angeles and you have no way to get there, and so I drive you there in my Ferrari. And then once I get you there, I give you the keys to the Ferrari and say, hey, just keep the car. That's what God has done. Through His Holy Spirit, He renews and regenerates us. And then He says, hey, just keep my Spirit. And he doesn't give the Spirit begrudgingly or in small doses. He poured him out richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, in lavish abundance. Paul's language here speaks of the extravagant generosity of God toward people who were once detestable and hateful fools, enslaved to sin, yet who were brought by God to a place where they're looking to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. In saving us, there's something else that God did for us. In verse 7, Paul says, so that being justified by His grace. What does it mean to be justified? Wayne Grudem defines justification in this way. Listen to what he says. It is an instantaneous legal act of God in which God does two things. Number one, decides to think. So keep in mind that justification is something that happens in the mind of God. He decides to think of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And number two, he declares us to be righteous in his sight. Keep in mind that Christ's righteousness is a perfect righteousness. Amen? Don Lemon of CNN was talking on his show with Chris Cuomo recently, and he said, and I quote, Jesus Christ admittedly was not perfect when he was here on this earth, unquote. If Don Lemon is right, then Jesus' righteousness is a flawed righteousness that cannot get any of us to heaven. Fortunately, though, we don't get our theology from Don Lemon. 
We get it from the Bible, God's Word, which teaches us that Jesus was perfectly righteous in every imaginable way. And when someone is justified by God, God thereby is deciding to clothe them with the perfect righteousness of Christ so that it now belongs to them. And with that perfect righteousness, we can get into heaven. There's only one way that we can get into heaven, and that is through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do not think that you can get yourself into heaven through your own righteousness. Jesus has ruined that for you. God has been staring at Jesus' perfect righteousness for the last 2,000 years. And you think you're going to waltz into God's throne room on judgment day and impress him with your petty little imperfect, deeply flawed righteousness? Jesus has already blown the curve for all of us. But he does offer his righteousness for free to those who will admit their own unrighteousness and their need for the righteousness that only he can provide. Wonderfully, in justifying us, God decides to be forever governed by this decision that he makes regarding those who believe in his son. God doesn't justify us and then forget about that decree that he made at an earlier time. In justifying us, God then resolves to never think another thought about us, feel another feeling about us, or allow anything into our life and to do, or to do anything to us that is not shaped by this decision to justify us. And this justification holds true at all times, all day, every day, good days and bad days, waking or sleeping. And the reason we can know this is because, as Paul says here in verse 7, God justified us by his what? By his grace. Which means that we never deserve this justification in the first place. We did not deserve this justification on the day that we obtained it. So there's nothing we can do to lose it. How can we ever unearn something that we never earned in the first place? The fact that God's justification of us is all of grace is exceedingly good news for us because it means that it's always ours. And the cool part is that God did not justify us as an end in itself, but as a means to a greater end. Look at verse 7 again. Paul says, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When you see the word heirs, think sonship. Think of Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, where Paul says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. In saving us, God made us sons and daughters of God with full rights and privileges of sonship And emerging from our being sons and daughters of God is the fact that we are now heirs of God, heirs of eternal glory in heaven with God, which is why Paul says God made us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We who believe in Christ will one day come into our full inheritance as sons of God and daughters of God. We will receive glorified bodies that are throbbing with vitality and eternal life. And we will live among the infinite riches of God's kingdom for all of eternity as fully mature sons and daughters of God, completely free of sin, with absolutely no hindrances to our ability to experience Christ in all of his fullness. And guys, we didn't make any of this happen. God did it all from beginning to end And to him be the glory. Amen? Now, in closing, let me ask you a question. How does meditating on all this affect you? How has it affected you even as 
you've been reading this text and as we have gone through the text and preached these truths to ourselves. Does it fill your heart with gratefulness? Does it humble you? Do you think it'll have any impact on the way you treat one another? Do you think it'll have any impact on the way that you respond to non-believers during the days of this coming week? Or will you leave here and go onto Facebook and shake your head in disgust at all the fools out there who just aren't spiritual enough to get it like you do. As if it is such a great affliction for you to be such a smart person living in a world of fools. Will you mock and belittle and lampoon lost people for behaving as lost people? Or will you love them and pray for them And treat them with honor in the meantime. And pray that God will save them the way that he saved you. And perhaps even be an instrument of his grace in their life. You see, what we have just done this evening is not some meaningless spiritual exercise. We've just allowed the Apostle Paul to take us on a gospel train of thought. Designed to influence our mindset toward unsaved people in our government, and toward our fellow man around us who are right now dead in their trespasses and sins. Paul has reminded us of how we are to behave toward them. He has reminded us of what we were like before Christ saved us. And he's reminded us of the kind and loving and merciful and gracious way that God has gone about saving us in Christ. And he's given us these reminders in order to humble us and to soften our hearts and to position us to treat lost people with the same kind of philanthropy that God has shown toward us. Will you let God nurture this kind of heart in you toward others through the gospel? Richard Wormbrand as many of you know, was imprisoned for over 13 years in communist Romanian prisons for his faith in Christ. And during those years of imprisonment, he experienced unspeakable tortures at the hands of the communists. If anyone had a right to be embittered against communists, it would have been Richard Wormbrand. Yet in his book, Tortured for Christ, He says, and I quote, If I were asked, are you for the communist or against them? My answer would be a complex one. Communism is one of the greatest menaces to mankind. I am utterly opposed to it and wish to fight it until it is overthrown. But I am seated in the heavenly places with Jesus, a sphere in which the communists are understood and loved. Therefore, my aim is to spread the gospel to the communists to give them the good news about Christ, who is my Lord and who loves the communists. Unquote. I wonder sometimes if many evangelical Christians here in America could even speak this way about their political rivals. Richard Wormbrand was not the only one who thought this way about the deceived and foolish torturers who hatefully tormented him and his fellow Christians. He says, and I quote, I have seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red hot iron pokers in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for the communist. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ which was poured out in our hearts, unquote. He continues by talking about how sometimes the very communists 
who tortured them would sometimes run afoul of their own superiors and end up being thrown into the very prison where they once tortured prisoners. And Wormbrand says, and I quote, Now the tortured and the torturer were in the same cell. And while the non-Christians showed hatred toward their former inquisitors and beat them, Christians took to their defense. In other words, they took to the defense of their former torturers, even at the risk of being beaten themselves and accused of being accomplices with communism. I have seen Christians give away their last slice of bread. We were given one slice a week. And I have seen Christians give away their last slice of bread and the medicine that could save their own lives to a sick communist torturer who was now a fellow prisoner. Unquote. I don't share this to shame you guys. I share this with you to show you what's possible. The power of the Holy Spirit operating in the life of believers whose whole mindset is shaped by the gospel. Only the Spirit of Christ can produce this kind of love, and only the gospel of Jesus Christ can put a Christian in a frame of mind to show this kind of amazing philanthropy toward hateful human beings in this way. And wonderfully, some of the communists who were loved in this way that I just read came to faith in Christ and became themselves agents of God's philanthropy to others. So let me end this evening by talking about philanthropy. Perhaps you wish that you could do something radical with your life. Perhaps you wish you could engage in philanthropy in a way that makes a difference in this world. Maybe you wish you had billions of dollars like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett so that you could literally give billions of dollars away and do a whole lot of good for the world if you just had such amazing resources. Here's what I want you to know. If you want to engage in philanthropy, take some time to study this passage and understand that God's greatest act of philanthropy for the world was not digging wells or bringing people out of poverty or even delivering the Jews from the political dominion of Rome. His greatest act of philanthropy was to send his son into the world so that through his son, sinners could be saved from their own sins and be reconciled to a holy God, which was their greatest need. His greatest act of philanthropy was regenerating sinners and making them new and then pouring out His Holy Spirit upon them when they believed in Him, justifying them by His grace and making them heirs of the hope of eternal life with Him in heaven. And if this is God's greatest act of philanthropy, then your greatest act of philanthropy to the world is to tell other people about this God and to preach this gospel, this good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, to make the gospel of Christ known to others so that they themselves might experience the philanthropy of God through Christ and be saved just as God saved you. And the second greatest thing that you can do is to preach this very gospel to yourself every day and allow it to shape your own soul in such a way that you stand ready to engage in good deeds and show kindness and love even toward the very people who offend you right now the most in such a way that the world that is watching you is left baffled and wondering, how in the world can you be so charitable? And then you have opportunity 
to tell them the reason for the hope that lies within you. Guys, we've got to be different than the world. We live in an angry world, and if we're just caught up in that and we're just like everyone else, we, we lose our light and we lose our testimony. Paul gives us a beautiful way. And what is not to love about this way that Paul gives to us in Titus 3? It worked for these Christians in first century Roman culture, and it will work for us today. And it's what the need of the hour requires of all of us. And let's pray and ask God to help us to do these very things. Lord God, I pray if there's any here in the sound of my voice that do not know you, they've never come to you in their bankruptcy and brokenness and acknowledge that they could not save themselves and that they need a Savior and the only Savior for them is Jesus, I pray that you would bend them low in your grace before the cross of Christ tonight and that they would call out to Jesus for salvation, that they would be so smitten by the beauty of Christ, the beauty of your philanthropy, Lord, that they would consider it an intolerable suffering to live one more minute apart from this God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as believers to not just believe this gospel by which we're saved, but that we would believe in this gospel also as the template, as the pattern for how we relate to others, one another in the church and toward those in the world who presently are very lost as we once were. May the fragrance of the gospel be evident and palpable in all of our lives as we are and our attitudes and our words and our actions are shaped by this beautiful gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We cannot do this of our own strength, Lord. Only you can accomplish this in us, but you give us the means through your spirit and the gospel that you've given to us. So help us to keep this gospel ever before us that we might live freely the way that we're called to in this passage and thereby give glory to the matchless name of Jesus in whose name we pray and all God's people said,